together. Lord God, we are here for you. We're here to worship and exalt you, to bring glory to you. We know that everything we have comes from you. In you we live and move and have our being. You formed us in your image, redeemed us through the blood of your Son, given us purpose and hope, meaning for life, life here on this earth, this broken earth Yet it is, but we long look for the day of redemption when all things are made new. And here in the somewhere between, we pray that our lives would glorify you. You change us, mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want us to do a little word association game this morning. So think about the word motive. Motive. We've got a big picture of that coming up on the screen here. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you see the word motive? Criminology, maybe? What the motive of that criminal? <laughs> That's the first thing that came to your mind, too? Or maybe, what is their motive? I don't know what their motive is. I think I do know what their motive is. Look at the political scene. What is his motive? What is her motive? We think we're pretty good at judging the motives of others. But what about our own motives? (laughs) We kind of hide those things behind closed doors, disguise our motives with a ministry smile or nice clothes or the right behavior the right kind of vocabulary. And we are really good at looking at the motives of other people, we think, through their facial expressions or their words or whatever, and we we look at them and say, I think I know what their motive is. But what about my motive? I'm asking myself that. What is my motive? You ask yourself that question. I'm not going to ask you, what's my motive? You see, the, the most convicting, harsh, per se, message that a preacher can preach should be preached at himself first, with some fingers pointed back at himself. And so I am asking myself, what is my motive? Ask yourself that question. We think we're pretty good at judging our motives, but we need a litmus test. We need a litmus test outside of ourselves because we fail at that task. Flint, the city of Flint, was pretty bad at judging how their water conditions were actually, you know. If they would have just pulled out a litmus test, (laughs) tested the water, and then put out the results accurately and, and sought help, maybe that would have solved a lot of problems for a lot of hurting people right now. It's a crisis, In our state, it's a huge crisis. I'm so glad that churches in our community are donating water to the city of Flint, to residents there. But in the same way in our lives, though, we disguise, we hide behind a guise of a nice-looking face and a nice, bright smile and try to push our motives, what they might be, somewhere where where nobody else can see. It's a good thing that the person sitting next to you right now doesn't know the worst thought you've ever thought. Right? God does, though. 
God knows every thought, every intent, every motive. And the litmus test that God gives his people is his word. Specifically this morning, 1 Corinthians 13 gives us this litmus test, gives me a litmus test, gives you a litmus test about our motives. It's convicting. It's cutting. That's what the word of God is. It's a, it's a litmus test for people seeking to faithfully follow God and be conformed to the image of his son. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even bone and marrow. And so this, this message has hurt me all week. It, it might hurt you. We can try to dodge the convicting sword of God's word. And, and continue trying to shield our motives from him, from the litmus test of his word. But if you and I, and I know that you do, we want to glorify him through our lives as we just prayed. We want to make his name known that we need to expose our souls to the soaking of the litmus test. 1 Corinthians 13. A.T. Robertson, a a scholar from bygone years, writing on 1 Corinthians 13, said it'd be a pity to pick apart this beautiful song like pulling petals off a rose. And so I'm not going to endeavor to try to pick apart 1 Corinthians 13 and explain every tiny detail. We need to soak in it. We need to let this chapter soak into our souls like a litmus test. And ask ourselves this question, what is my motive? What is my motive? So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Prior context, though, back into chapter 12, verses 27, the Apostle Paul continues this discussion about spiritual gifts and operation in the corporate worship setting. The corporate worship setting, looking back at chapter 11 and through chapter 12 and chapter 14, are about the use of spiritual gifts. Some of those gifts we recognize were for the establishment of the first century church, of the early church, and also the gift of tongues was a sign of judgment to unbelieving Israel, as told about in the book of Isaiah. We'll look at that in chapter 14 later on in this series. But chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 are about the corporate worship setting. Spiritual gifts are not for ourselves. They're for others. Every spiritual gift is for edifying, encouraging, serving, loving the others. That's what corporate worship is about. It's not worshiping ourselves. It's worshiping God through loving others and exercising the spirit-imparted gifts to minister to other people. And so it's no mistake that 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched between all this discussion of corporate worship because love is the baseline, is the baseline of how worship as a church is supposed to play as harmony, as music. In a good band, actually, and, and I had to learn this because I didn't grow up playing in a band, but a friend of mine who was uh, sort of a rock star for a little while, he said, actually, the lead instrument in a band is the bass guitar. They hold everything together. I thought, no, really? It's not the lead guitarist or the drums? No, he said, actually, the bass guitar. The same thing kind of goes into the choir, the bass line in the choir, holds the tone together, holds the music together, and worship in the local church in everything that we do through remembering who God is and submitting to who he is because of what he has done and then obeying him out of a heart of submission because of who he is and what he has done. All of, all of the worship that we do is supposed to be running on the baseline of love. 
It's a litmus test. This is a litmus test of love that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13. And it's, it's convicting. It's like a cutting scalpel. It's going to work into my soul, I pray. Work into your soul. Soak in it. Look at verse 27 of chapter 12, though, just to pick up where we left off last week. Verse 27 through 31 now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Remember, every part of the body matters because no part can do its part, with all the other part without all the other parts. We need each other. It's not about me. It's, it's not about you. It's about all of us giving glory to God, exalting him, remembering him, recalling who he is, obeying and submitting. All of us are necessary. All of us are appointed and placed as God has so composed his body, Christ's body, we're all individually members of it. All are equally valuable and significant in God's eyes. There is no second-class, third-class, fourth-class Christian in the kingdom of God. The pastors are not higher up on a hierarchical scale in God's eyes. We all serve the Lord together and love one another together knowing, I need you, you need me. Boy, we better love one another like Christ has loved us, Right? 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 Okay. So, and as God has appointed, verse 28, here's this, repeating the same idea, as God has composed, as God has placed, as you see in verse 18, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And then he asks these rhetorical questions, questions that, automatically deserve a no answer, negative response. All are not apostles, are they? No. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? No. All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, the greater gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. A way beyond comparison is another way to translate that line. The greater gifts, the fruits of the Spirit are superior, and love is supreme over all the spiritual gifts. Love is the baseline. Love is the litmus test. Love is the way we are to function as God's people in the collective corporate worship setting. And so he's going to then transition from this point and say that love is essential, not optional. That's point number one. Love is essential, not optional. It's required package for the vehicle to go. They're not optional to the package, okay? It's the fuel by which this thing runs. So verse one of chapter 13, ask this question again. What is my motive? What is my motive? Allow God to ask you that question. What is, your, what is your motive? You see, the Corinthians, they had it wrong because they were bent in this worldview still that they were surrounded by and had lived in. A self-appeasement, self-entertaining, self-centered, self-focused. Everything was about self and me, myself, and I rising up the charts of society's importance, rising up in hierarchy, Gaining wealth, gaining position and power, 
And they were building that into the church. As I've repeated throughout the series, the fault lines of the culture often invade the church, almost always invade the church. And so these kinds of attitudes were coming into how they operate in corporate worship, the spiritual gifts. They were saying, hey, these are more important, or I want the ones that are louder. I want the ones that seem more important, the ones that fit into our cultural context. If you're a fantastic preacher, and that's where he goes. Verse 1. Notice the shift, though. He doesn't say you. He says, I. See? You see that? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I can have the most excellent communication ability, the widest vocabulary. I can be the best order in all the world over, but if I don't do it in love, it's like an alarm clock going off at five in the morning on daylight savings time day. You know, shut it off. And so, some of you, perhaps me, perhaps in my heart, if it was not full of love, you heard me say something, or you've heard an independent fundamental fire-breathing pastor, how I like to often put it, say something, and it was truth. It may have been according to the word of God. It was right, it was true, but it was not said in love. And now you hear those same words, and it's like they're saying, you, you can't hear a thing. You can tell I didn't do this in high school here. Thank you, Eric, for bringing these along. I can preach with all the, the, the beauty and language and literary and prose and poem and have everything put together, and wow, it's obnoxious. Can't even hear it, can't receive it. Somebody came into my office and was talking about how they grew up hearing certain phrases. Some of them are true, but because that man who was a Bible teacher did not live in love and in purity, even when they hear those same things now, it's like, <laughs> just rack it, shut it off. I can't hear it. I have friends that they, they heard such harsh preaching from the King James Bible. Nothing wrong with the King James Version of translation. But a pastor who had no love preaching in harshness without any care for the people. And they, ha- they cannot use that translation anymore because all they hear is that guy's voice like a crashing cymbal, you see. Shut it off, I can't hear it. It's a super preacher who amounts to nothing because he doesn't have love. Love is essential, not optional. Chuck Swindoll said, If we don't relate to others in love, we don't relate to others really at all. You can be a super preacher, super Bible teacher, have your outline streaming with perfect prose, and it's just obnoxious and worthless. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy... And know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, I can be the super theologian. 
I can understand all the details of eschatology and, and harmardiology and angelology and have every piece of hermeneutics figured out and, and I can write books after and books and books and books and I can have people come and listen to all my details of theology but if it's not done in love, it means nothing. It doesn't amount to anything at all. We can understand, we can be cerebral and never have it touch our heart. We can have a, a correct but a sterile religion. See? You can have accurate theology, but if it never reaches your heart, if it never reaches my heart, if it never changes me to love more and judge less, then it's worthless. Love is essential. It's not optional. You can be a super preacher, a super theologian, and you can have, be the super pastor. People want a pastor who's full of faith, who has vision, who can see what's going to come and say, I know God can do the impossible. I know God can break addiction and break all these bondages of immorality. I know God can change people's lives. I know it. I know it. I've got faith to believe that God can do anything, right? Sounds good. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, have it within me, Christ's love, pouring out to other people who need his love, it's like vapor, wind, nothing, nothing at all. This is a litmus test, isn't it? Verse 3, now he goes from super preacher, super theologian, super pastor, to super missionary. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, you catch that? Give everything, even your family heirlooms, your cars, your house, your dishes, all your clothes, you give it all away to go feed the poor. Serve full time on the mission field. If I surrender my body to be burned, if you go overseas to the Middle East and you're preaching the gospel in an Islamic context and ISIS captures you and you stand there and they, they kill you for your faith, but you don't have love, it still is of no reward at all. At all. Not, not a little bit. Nothing, nothing. It can look so good. If, if I saw somebody, if you saw somebody giving up everything they had to feed the poor, to go on the mission field, but they're doing it out of false motives, not a motive of love. If I do it without a motive of love, it means nothing at all, nothing at all. You can be a super missionary, a super pastor, a super theologian, a super preacher, and amount to nothing at all. Love must be our only motive, not an, an, a, a motive, the only motive. Love must be the baseline. Love must be my only motive for everything I do. Love for God, love for his people. All the people he has made, not some of them, all of them. Love has to be my motive. Love must be our motive. 
Verse four. Now he goes on from love as is essential, not optional, to love is patient describing that love is, is more than a feeling. It's an action. It's a demonstration, not an inclination. It's not how I feel towards someone. It's what I do because God has loved me and changed my heart and filled me with love for him and for his people. So I turn and I'm patient, kind, not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Patience implies this, this idea that I, I, I'm going to give you room to grow as you're giving me room to grow and change. I'm not going to manipulate you, try to get you to conform to what I think you should be. That's God's job. Love is patient when people wrong me when people wrong you. Patient to say, I, I know all my faults, my failures. Oh, how I need grace. This, I, this word kind, love is kind, is, is connected with this word for grace. It means to be full of grace because of all the grace that you've received. Grace giving, not judging. That's what love is. And this goes in contrast to everything that runs in our culture, just as it did in the first century in Corinth. Impatient. I want it now. I want want my food now. I want my my clothes now. I want this, these toys now. I want that vacation now. I can't wait. Instant gratification. And I want you to do what I want you to do right now. I don't have patience for you. You see how that works? That's how our, that bleeds into our hearts Maybe it's already there, actually, in our hearts. And kind. When I lack kindness and grace towards someone else, it also means that I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting how much grace has been poured out on me because of the bloodshed on Calvary. Love is kind. Love is patient. It's not an inclination. It's a demonstration Look back at verse four, and it is not jealous because love says, I know that everything I have is exactly what God wants me to have and I'm content in what he has given me and therefore I'm not gonna want or envy what somebody else has. I'm not gonna look down my nose at somebody who has less or fold my arms and stand back at somebody who has more. There's no room for envy or jealousy with the litmus test of love. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. It's tied in with this idea of jealousy. I know that everything that I have comes from God. You know that everything you have comes from God. Therefore, what room is there for boasting? It's only by the mercy of God through Jesus Christ that I am who I am and I have what I have. It's all from him and for him and to him. For his glory. What is that? There's no room for boasting. There's no room for boasting at the foot of the cross because we all gather there at the foot of the cross together on our knees. You see? And on our knees together, we see God's love together. And there's no room to be arrogant. 
That's why the Apostle Paul said, I boast only in the cross of Christ. Because the full demonstration of God's love is seen at the cross. That's why he began 1 Corinthians with all this discussion about Christ and the cross, him crucified. That's what we preach, Christ and crucified. To the, to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus, the Messiah, bleeding out for us in our place on the cross, rising again. The work of grace. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. The New American Standard Bible translates it. That means rude. Rude. Pushing people, ramrodding people over. Wanting my own way. And when I don't get it, I'm going to bark and be rude and be unkind. That's not what love does. Love does, love does not. You see the Drawing this beautiful parallelism really in this hymn, 1 Corinthians 13. Does not act rude. It does not seek its own. So I'm not bent. Love does not first say, what do I need? What will make me happy? What will satisfy my needs? It first looks at others and says, what do they need? How can they be happy? How can I bless them? How can I minister to them? Because the Spirit has given me gifts to serve and edify others, not serve myself. Love is an action, not an inclination, more than a feeling. And it is not provoked. It's not easily provoked. That's how the King James translated it. It's not quickly angry, not quick-tempered, slow to speak, slow to, 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 to talk, slow to wrath. That's the way, that's the path of love. for all of us, is not easily angered. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh, this is a hard one. See how this soaks into our soul like a litmus test. We want to keep people in debt sometimes, don't we? It's natural to want to tally up. Well, 27 years ago, they said this. 23 years ago, she looked at me that way. Nine months ago, I heard that. Eh, I don't like the way they did that. And just keep this tally. Our sins are erased through the mercy of God. And we respond in love. We erase all those tally marks. I must erase all those tally marks if love is to be my motive because I am called to demonstrate the same love with which Christ has loved me. Is this soaking into your soul yet? I know it is for me. We don't keep tally, hold people in debt. question that I often hear though is, well, what if they really hurt me? What if they really, really did hurt me? Okay. What did you do while you were still a sinner? Rejecting God. Rebelling against his way. And God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love frees us 
to allow the judgment to be God's job. We trust that God is completely just. We don't salivate over punishment, condemnation. We let God do what only he can do, and we know that in the end, everything will be made right, and justice will be perfect in the end because God will be the one administering justice. The injustices matter. There are people here in this building, I know, in the sound of my voice, who have had grave injustices done them, domestic abuse, violence, anger, all kinds of hurts. Those things matter. I'm not belittling those things. But love frees us to run to Jesus and then respond the way he has responded to us and trust God for the final outcome in the end. You see the difference there? See it? Love. Love is our motive. Verse 6. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. You see someone sinning, you don't go, aha! Ah, I knew they weren't perfect. I knew it. They're a fake, they're a hypocrite. Look at that behavior. No, love never points a finger. But rejoices in the truth that sets us free. Free to know God's love. Free to give God's love. The truth that exposes our own sin that causes even the Apostle Paul to say, if I, if I, what about me? Instead of asking What about them? Love turns the whole question around and says, what about me? Love bears all things, verse 7, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It keeps persevering when the circumstances are difficult. Sometimes loving like Christ loves his church, loving like that is like pulling a muscle worse. It's like sprinting with all your gusto. It's like a racehorse striving for the finish line, and it's only possible through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us that we can love like that, that we can be filled up with that kind of love that bears all these things and keeps going, keeps going. That's what this word endures mean. It keeps it persevering. It believes all things, and it hopes. We know that in the end, perfect justice will be done. We know that in the end, the righteous one will sit on his throne and will rule with perfect, perfect equity. We know that in the end, everything will be redeemed. Our lives, these bodies will be redeemed. This world, sin-wracked world will be redeemed Love, love is the baseline of that kind of hope, of that kind of belief, to keep going, persevering. Love is not an inclination, it's a demonstration, it's an action, more than a feeling. Love is essential, it's, it's not optional. Monty Williams played a couple short stints in the NBA, and then became associate coach for an NBA team. Not too long ago, his wife was driving some of their kids, and somebody 
crossed over the center line at night, hit her head on, and she was killed. I want you to watch a video clip of Monty Williams talking about love, a love that hopes, a love that believes, a love that perseveres, a love that is the central and only motive for the Christian life at the funeral service of his wife. Listen to how he's talking to these NBA players, coaches. This was aired on ESPN on all the major news networks. Go ahead and listen to Monty Williams for a moment. And my wife would punch me if I were to sit up here and whine about what's going on. That doesn't take away the pain. But it will work out because God causes all things to work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. See, the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just numb that, and it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you. Get outside of these walls, and you know it's true. This will work out. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times, and we're going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord. And that's what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. Monty continues on and explains how Christ is the answer to all the problems that we face. Shared the gospel to all of these players and all these coaches. And the love that he's received in Jesus Christ is the only way whereby he's motivated to extend complete forgiveness to this family, this family that is responsible for his wife's death. The only way that he can say, God is love, I have hope, my wife is in heaven. That's the kind of response that comes from a heart motivated by love that keeps believing, that hopes all things, that endures all things because love never fails. And the full demonstration of God's love is seen in the cross of Christ. And so for you and I to respond with a motive of love, we must run back to the cross, look to the cross, bow at the cross. Every day, our, our words, our thoughts, our actions should be governed by love, by God's love, overflowing, overflowing from our hearts. I want you to listen to a paraphrase that I wrote up for myself, verses one through three, because I wanted it to cut right into the issues that I know I face, the motives and intentions and thoughts that I know only God can 
change. I want, you to encourage, I want to encourage you to do the same thing. Write out a paraphrase of this passage this week, 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what I wrote. If I am the most powerful preacher, the best Bible teacher in all the world, communicating with incredible creativity, smoothness of speech, and an amazing vocabulary, but do not have love, I would be as obnoxious as a crash of cymbals that rattles my eardrums or a blaring alarm clock at five in the morning. Shut it off. If I have profound insight into God's plans, understand all the details of theology and comprehend the most obscure points of eschatology, yet do not have love toward my brothers and sisters, then my entire life equals nothing. If I have unshakably great faith to believe God for the impossible, to remove mountains of addiction, depression, immorality, abuse, anger, violence, to believe God can do anything, but do not have love, it is of no benefit whatsoever. And if I give away everything I own, my job, house, cars, family, heirlooms, pots and pans and everything in order to feed the poor and serve full time in the foreign mission field, if I surrender to martyrdom at the hand of persecutors but don't have love, it all amounts to no reward at all. What's my motive? Allow God to ask you that same question. Here's a a few A, B, C, D, E's I got from Chuck Swindoll on how to love. A, I love in that I accept. You might want to jot this down if you're a note taker. I love in that I accept you just as you are. B, I believe you are valuable because you are a human being, body and soul. C, I care. I care when you are hurt. D, I desire what is best for you. It doesn't mean I give you whatever you want, but because I want what is best for you. I desire what is best for you out of a heart of love. And E, here's the most difficult one for me sometimes. I erase all offenses. Are you still keeping a record of offenses? Like it talks about love, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Keep a chart of all the debts that other people have racked up on your account. Why are we doing that? Life is short. Really short. God has called us here for these short moments to live, to display his love and his truth to the world. And yet we want to hold people in debt till the day we die or maybe just before. God's love motivates us to let it go. Let it go doesn't mean it doesn't matter, but you're trusting God for the consequences at the end. Love is essential, not optional. Love is an action more than a feeling. Love is a demonstration, not an inclination. This litmus test. I want you to pull out your your little pH test strip now, okay? (laughs) You see this? I want you to I want you to put this in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Put it in there, and over the next six days, having this sticking out of your Bible or helping separate the pages of it will help you remember to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13 and let this soak into your soul and, and judge your motives as only God's Word can do. 
to change the way you think, to change the way I think, to change the way we talk, to change the way we respond, change the way we serve as we let God's love percolate into sometimes our callous or tired or self-centered souls. That's the litmus test of love. I want you to all bow your heads with me here and let's allow God to ask this question now. What is my motive? What is it? I need you, God, to change me from the inside out. From the dust in the garden, in your image, you have formed us, breathed into us the breath of life with a passion and delight. We see heaven and earth rejoice in your creation. You created us for your pleasure to bring you glory and honor and praise, and yet we focus on ourselves and sin and refuse to love. You sent your son, broken body, his heart willing, voluntarily submitted to your will, Father, willing spirit. On a lonely cross, your son suffered and died. We look back at the wonder of your love this morning, the wonder of your love, and the mystery of the cross flowing from your heart the you, God, so loved this cosmos, this world, that you sent your son to die, to redeem, to buy us back out of the marketplace of sin. Open up our, our clenched fists, Lord. Soften my my tightened heart. Open up our self-centered souls to the litmus test of your word, your love, so that you receive all glory and honor through our worship, not only today, but through all of our lives in this church. Through Christ, your Redeemer, we pray. Amen. you all stand with me? This message would be incomplete if I didn't give an invitation from God's word to anybody here in this room who has not received the love of Jesus Christ. The way you receive his love is by turning to what Jesus Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection, and you say, I know that I am a lost sinner. I'm stuck in my own self-entrenched desires, and I need rescue. And you turn from your sin, and you, you turn to the cross. You turn to him. You turn away from your way and turn to the way, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And if you have never done that this morning, God is inviting you right now, right there where you're standing, you can trust in Christ and be redeemed and be filled with his love. And he will change your motives from the inside out, change the way you live. It will amaze you. You could do that right now. If you want to talk to somebody about that, I'm going to be in the foyer. We have some booklets that we'd like to share with you called The Story. It's about God's good news. Okay, that's you. 
come talk with me or with Pastor John in the venue. You're dismissed.